Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. My name is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. There's a big difference between a solution that measures a fundraiser's performance and a solution that helps a fundraiser perform. QBAC helps fundraisers to excel at their most critical task, developing deep, meaningful relationships with donors and cultivating them into lifelong givers. Give your fundraisers a better qualified portfolio, one that considers more than just capacity and simple scoring. Your fundraisers will also get insights into the hearts, minds, and connections of their donors. Fundraisers have a tough job. Help them close bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Podcast listeners, the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow is finally back on the schedule. We have several dates confirmed. Since 2014, our team has been providing high-quality one-day roadshows in partnership with nonprofit leaders who want to showcase their space and provide thought-provoking and highly interactive fundraising training in their nonprofit community. Our roadshows have been described by our guest as hands-down the best professional development experience that they have ever been a part of. This experience has been described as challenging assumptions with conversation-inspiring content and new ways of thinking. If you would like to register for one of the upcoming stops on the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow, just visit the link in the show notes. Hi, Jackson. I am delighted to have you on the Fundraising Talent Podcast today. Uh, You and I have never been in the room together. I have never bought you a cheeseburger or shared a cup of coffee with you. Uh, And so we're going to use this uh, virtual format to uh, get to know each other. I, I was looking through uh, some of the conversations that you're a part of and that we're mutually a part of on LinkedIn. I don't know how we connected. I'm sure there's something you said that <laughs> caught my attention, um, but I'm delighted to have you here today, Jackson. Um, we're gonna uh, we're gonna kick off a, a pretty cool conversation. You're gonna uh, take it in any direction you want it to go. But before we ha- before we do that, how about we just ask you to introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm Jackson Cooper. I am based in Seattle, Washington. I'm currently the major gifts manager for Pacific Northwest Ballet here in Seattle. And uh, I teach fundraising in the arts for UNC Greensboro. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. You do some teaching too. Now, yeah. I uh, I have been given the privilege at the local private private college nearby. They've given me the privilege of teaching for the last couple of years. Um, is that something new or uh, is that something you originally aspired to or the whole idea of teaching? Talk to me about that. Yeah. Well, I have several things that I wanted to accomplish when I was teaching. I started grad school in the midst of the pandemic because I thought, why the hell not? You know, the world's ending, might as well get my master's. And I really felt inclined to teach. I always loved teaching because I had really great teachers and mentors. And I realized that there actually was a real lack of fundraising teachers who were teaching in a way that was not so personal to them, um, but in a very fair, objective, balanced way. And I had um, heard that from several of my friends who were in public, uh, you know, public administration uh, programs and, and other arts administrations where the fundraisers were teaching their way of fundraising rather right. than multiple different ways of fundraising and, and hearing different perspectives and stories. So I wanted to develop a course for a university that was sort of all encompassing of that. So I had reached out to my alma mater at UNC Greensboro in North Carolina. And I said, you know, hey, do you, are, do you have a class like this? And, you know, I just, I just wanted to create the syllabus and curriculum as part of my graduate studies. And so the director, Hannah Greneman, was just like, do you just want to teach it? 
like on Zoom. And this was before, you know, pre-vaccines and everything. So it was like Zoom school looked to be the future. And it felt like a real full circle moment because when I I graduated with my undergrad from UNCG and at the time there was not an arts administration program. So I actually Frankensteined a degree together in business and theater that focused on arts admin. And now, and now there's a program and Hannah's an incredible leader of it. So now I'm teaching back in it. So it feels really good to have a full circle moment. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think some of the appeal and and the allure of some of these, uh, the attractiveness of some of these academic programs, you know, I think, uh, and I just had this conversation with another guest just a couple of weeks ago, the idea that as these, as the sort of the proliferation of academic programs has happened, um, you know, in the nonprofits, you know, nonprofit administrative sort of uh, focus, but also those that are focused on philanthropy and fundraising. Um, it's affording, um, you know, young people a more deliberate and intentional sort of path yeah. into this space differently than, you know, when I got into this 25 years ago, it was like everybody you met we had that sort of we came through the back door sort of narrative, right. you know, yeah. um, and I don't hear that story. You know, if, if I'm talking to a, if I'm talking to somebody who's only five years in now, I'm hearing more like I deliberately chose this. I may yeah. or may not have gotten a graduate degree in this space. Are you hearing well, that sort of narrative, too? Yeah, I was going to say one of the things that I really like about teaching this is it's and one of my students commented on this the other day where they said you know they said it i like your class because it's very practical yeah and i said uh you know yeah fundraising is practical and it's also very personal so you know you want to ground yourself in the practical objectives of it and then you know layer on your personal experience and the personal experience of every shop you're in but for arts and culture especially in arts administration, I I'm feel really fulfilled with it because even if they don't become fundraisers, you know, the students, they're still understanding of what fundraising is and how it works, which as an artist and sort of future entrepreneurs of some kind, either of themselves or within an arts institution, they understand how that works. And one of the biggest things that I found working in the arts is sometimes artists and donors, you know, just don't understand how fundraising works. Um, And that's true across all mediums. It's not just arts and culture. So one of the things that really inclines me to teach is this idea of, you know, creating this comprehensive understanding about what it means to give um, and, and not just of money, but of time and things. I'm working on a book right now called Giving Philanthropy and the Practice of Gratitude because I wanted to really, um, you know, talk about this, this, this giant idea of giving with a capital G. And so teaching has been really good because it, it, it teaches the students about how things work, how they can do it and how they fit into it. Um, and it's and it's been really exciting to teach during this moment in time when there's so much conversation about decolonizing wealth and uh you know community centric fundraising and such so it's almost as though as i t- i tell my students i go you're going to be walking in to an opportunity to change the systems that have been you know, sure, working in in some regards for the last however hundred years, but yeah. there's also a really great opportunity to center community better, to center, you know, in their case, art, um, and to sort of allow for more people to be touched through giving by uh, the work that they're doing. So it's, I, I think, it's such a critical time. Uh, to be learning about fundraising, and I and it's an understanding that I f- I think is a superpower for people when they co- go into working for a nonprofit is understanding you know how the money works, where it comes from, what are the different avenues that it works um, that it comes in because a lot of the issues that come up in nonprofits, or at least the things that uh, I, I mean issues as in the things that people complain to me about, you know, bo- oh, the board chair has too much power or, 
this donor who gives $50,000 is not going to give 50,000 anymore. And we're not sure what happen, happens is going to happen. And I go, you know, all of those problems can be saved by understanding how the fundraising system works, how to diversify revenue streams, how there are, you know, how to take power away, you know, power doesn't exist within the amount of money you give, but the amount of power you give to those people. So I, you know, there's a lot of like soft things that I've been integrating into these more practical lessons for the students. And it's been really rewarding because I see the light bulb go off and they're just like, oh, I get it now. Like it's not just transactional, it's personal and it's checking yourself. It's being ethical, things like that. It's been really a rewarding experience. Fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I can't, um, I can't echo your words about the idea of teaching has been a, um, because like a lot of, you know, I have found fundraising to be a very rewarding career, but the opportunity when teaching came up for me a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. right before the pandemic, sort of getting my wits about myself when it comes to knowing how to be in front of a classroom has been a, um, a, a good stretch, but, um, yeah, I, 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 I can't agree with you more that it's uh, a very, uh, very fulfilling sort of work. I, so, I, oh, I, I was just going to add to that. I mean, sorry to interrupt. I was just going to add to that. I also, for me too, it's, it's what you were saying, like, it's, it's really grounding to, yeah. to be in, in front of 20 people who don't know anything about what you're talking about. And you suddenly have to really check yourself to make sure you know what the heck you're talking about. And, uh, you know, I, I say it's, it's, it's very grounding for me. And it actually really enhances my practice during the day as a fundraiser because I always have to check myself. You know, am I walking the walk rather than just talking the talk? And then the other thing I'll say about it is, you know, I think one of the things uh, one of the things I, I wish I had learned earlier as a fundraiser is like, it's one thing to work in the field. It's another thing to give service to the field. Yeah. And so to participate in giving back. Um, and so for me, teaching is is service to the profession. So I, I really come at it, not at a, you know, at a, at a egotistical mind, like I'm doing this because I want to, you know, spread the gospel of Jackson, but it's more about like, teaching the next generation about how to enter this profession. And it was, you know, I started when I was 14 in arts fundraising. So I never took a class and I had to learn the hard way about, you know, donor relations and, and grant writing and what happens when you send a grant proposal a day late rather than a day early, you know, those, those sort of things that you, I wished I was taught in a class. So now I'm actually teaching it. So, I really, I really see it as service to the profession, first and foremost. So, Jackson, we invite our guests to come on here. We've been doing this. We're probably broadcasting here. This is probably episode number 350 after doing this for about four years. Um, and uh, we center these conversations around a big idea or bold opinion that our guest brings with them. Um, I don't necessarily always know what that big, big idea or bold opinion might be. Um, so, uh, what do you got for us today? I had, I've been thinking about this the last few days and, you know, I I'll give two, uh, that are really related. The first is the first is sort of what the thesis of my, um, book on giving is going to be, which is about this bigger idea of if we are centering giving less about giving money and more about giving time, giving space, giving attention, um, then we could be a more just society. Um, And how that sort of manifests as fundraisers sort of leads into my second idea, which is that, you know, fundraisers are often told, you know, we're in the, we're in between the organization and the community. Yes. So it's almost like, in a, in a sense, we sort of give our, a little bit of ourselves up when we get into that position. And my radical idea is that, like, no, we actually need to take that position and, you know, use it as a place for expressing our values and really embodying 
are what we believe in and what we believe is right and ethical and, um, you know, just using the space of fundraising to inspire donors to be better people. So the way that I see that happening, especially in arts and culture, COVID was a really great example where, you know, when arts and culture organizations shut down sudden and performances weren't happening, suddenly the messaging started to shift towards supporting the people of the institution. And there became this underlying theme around, you know, my, my colleagues and I talking about, you know, without people, this can't exist. And it really was, you know, so it became this big idea of people helping people, which I think we are, you know, taught at the beginning of our fundraising career. And then we get so ingrained in the systems and the programs and the, you know, just the mechanics of making the organization work that we that we forget to always tell stories about people. And um, some mediums are a little more fortunate to tell those stories. Hospitals tell a lot of those stories. A lot of uh, higher education tell stories about students and alumni. But for me, the big idea is, you know, if we continue to center this idea in fundraising of people helping people and giving back in some way, so donors giving not just money, but their time energy, resources, expertise, um, you know, we can create this amazing, amazing, beautiful world where, you know, everyone is taking care of each other. And that's, that's kind of my very big vision is, you know, I, I just want a world where there's, there's a lot of, you know, kindness and, and we're all taking care of one another. There's a, so there's sort of an, it's, it's interesting the way you've sort of put these two ideas together because there's sort of some interrelatedness there's some interrelatedness between the two one of the things that i have thought a lot about my a colleague of mine in the united kingdom refers to fundraising in sort of what she calls an instrumental view so it's sort of and i call it a i sometimes refer to it as sort of this intervening subculture so it sort of exists on the periphery and yeah. it's not a necessary, it's, it's sort of a, ne- it's, it's, we, it's just where we get that feeling of being sort of an awkward stepchild or a necessary right. evil. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting to hear what you're saying about the idea. You're sort of, it seems like you're almost Jackson embracing this idea that we have to sort of know how to exist. I want to see a more integrated role. Mm-hmm. But I'm hearing from your from your and correct me if I'm wrong. I'm hearing more of a let's be okay with that middleman, middle person sort of role. It will, but correct me where I'm hearing and not hearing that correctly. Yeah, I mean it's a little bit of both, right? Okay. So I think what it is is that it's it's sort of putting responsibility on the fundraiser to be the one who is um, setting the tone for the culture of giving. Um, yeah. And I, and it's really the fundraiser accepting the the true weight of that responsibility for their donors and for everybody in their community. Um, I see that a lot in um, the the advancement of equity, inclusion, diversity, and accessibility principles, where you know an institution can say that they're committed to that, but if there is still a culture of donor hierarchy and power given to the few who give the most. Um, But there's an organization that is saying, but we are community centric and we are this and we are that. Um, But that culture is still there. It is the responsibility of the fundraiser to dismantle that culture or to set a precedent and lead with with those values of equity and accessibility. So in a sense, it's almost like, it is it is creating a more human approach to fundraising and sort of leading with that human approach first and foremost, um, and then staying accountable to the community by which it serves. So let me offer you sort of where – so when I think back, you know, when I think back across the entirety of probably the last 
Well, let's just say the, the, the podcast conversations that we've had since the beginning of the pandemic, right? Yeah. Since the pandemic, since the summer of 2020, since the tragedy with George Floyd, when I think about all that sort of transpired in that awful, you know, that year that we never want to return to <laughs> for a myriad of reasons. Yeah. Um, I I think there's this messaging that's coming out of the, what I consistently hear on the podcast is this idea that fundraisers want to achieve higher aspirations, right? We have higher aspirations. And one of the things I started saying, Jackson, consistently on the podcast was the idea that we wanted to take a qualitative turn. So we had become this yeah. very metrics focused. I remember long before the pandemic came along, I remember I was speaking about this culture of metrics and other people certainly were. And we want this qualitative turn. But getting back to your point, the two points that you're you're, you're focusing on here, I don't know if we're ever going to get to some of these higher aspirations if we don't learn how to integrate. That's the word I'm hinging a lot of my yeah, thinking on, like that word. integrating both the fundraiser and therefore the donors. I tend to think that the donor, the relationship that the donor has with the organization is really just simply a byproduct of the relationship that the fundraiser has yeah. with the organization. So, for example, if you, Jackson... If if you're a you know if you're on the staff of a community theater and they don't know how to incorporate you and integrate you, they sure as hell aren't going to know how to integrate your donors, regardless absolutely. of who those donors are. Absolutely. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, it's no. You're absolutely right, and that's um, that's absolutely true, and that's where I think the responsibility of the fundraiser to lead with those qualitative things comes in that's that's what i mean by embodying values and really um leading with changing that culture if that culture exists within your organization you know it's going to show up in your donor pool and the same goes for your donor pool if there is a higher like i said a hierarchy of you know the people at the top who give the most have the most power then that's going to show up in how your fundraising shop, you know, is run and the organization is run. What I what I'm sort of giving a call to action for are fundraisers to begin to make the first move in dismantling those, you know, those power structures or really reflecting on what is the culture of the organization. How is it reflecting on me? What can I do better? And also, what can I do with my donors to make this a safer, more inclusive place? Um, I think it's going to have a lot of really hard conversations to occur with leadership and with um, the board and with staff. But I think it first starts with the fundraiser. I think the fundraiser needs to really check themselves about how you know, what are my own views about how I deal with money? I yeah, think that's something, right. that's something that I teach in my class. We start out every class with, you know, what is your relationship with wealth? What happens when you have money? What happens when you lose money? And I think that's something that is a really good starting place for a lot of fundraisers, no matter how seasoned you are. Like if you, even if you've been in it for 30 years or three years, you know, if you don't know how you react and act when you receive money, that is going to show up within how you run your organization, how you treat your donors, how you treat people with more money, you know, than less. And I think that's, you know, that's a really good exercise to start out with because that really makes you reflect on who you are. And then also, what are you bringing to your profession? Um, and I think, I mean, not to be bold, but I think some people would be lying if they said, I know how I know how I deal with money and it never shows up in my work. It, it absolutely shows up in our work. Um, so we just, you know, I think that's a really, I think that's a good first step in integrating and getting yeah. people involved in that. And even getting donors involved in that, you know, if we're if you're going to hold um, sessions with, about equity, diversity, inclusion, and accessibility, you have to address wealth disparity and class, uh, you know, class structure and things like that, and how 
those have influenced the decisions that we've made in our lives and including with people who have a very high net worth, you know, to give them that opportunity to be in a room, even with staff and with one another to say, you know, I grew up very poor and then I came into a lot of money and I had no idea to do with that. That's a very vulnerable place to be, but that's a really beautiful place to be because you can all have a conversation about how is money affecting us and by as a byproduct affecting how we are coming into these spaces of our organizations. So I, you Jackson, know, I, yeah, is, is the so one of the things that a lot of my listeners have been hearing me talk about for if, if they if they're longtime listeners is I'm a big advocate for the lunch table, and and I kind of wonder and I've never posed it sort of this way. Plenty of people have heard me talk about the lunch table and how I think it's sort of the center yeah. place, sort of the it's a central place in how we can get a lot of our most meaningful fundraising work done. Right. But is is part of this discussion that you and so many others of us are having. You know, are we basically getting to the place where we have to sort of own up to the fact that for too long we've privileged who's at the lunch table? Like, you know, you know, I remember uh, I remember a major gifts officer, a nearby friend of mine who said, you know, we don't take donors out to lunch. who can't give 60, you know, upwards of, you know, six figure gifts or something. And and so the idea of having lunch, the you know, the idea of the development director or the executive director having lunch with somebody who writes a routinely writes a check that's just a fraction of that mm-hmm. just doesn't fit. And that's that, right. you, you know, I, I, and I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm reflecting too on your use of the word hierarchy, um, how to, in order to dismantle that hierarchy, we've got to start having lunch table conversations with donors that are not writing the size of checks Yeah, that we are, you know, for the, you know, if, if anybody who's been in this field as long, you know, at least as long as I have knows that, you know, the donor you take out to lunch is usually usually writing you at least a you know four, five, six figure gift. Yeah, maybe that's going to have to be sort of a, a a a bygone sort of practice. I think a really great way of of centering that. Absolutely, I, I totally agree with you. There's a few things that come to mind. The first is you know everyone talks about you know who's at the table. Everyone's like who's at the table, who's at the table, who's at the table, and my colleagues and I always go like, why does it have to be a table? Why, who is, you know, like, you know, why do we have to have chairs? Why are we seated at a table? Why don't we just stand? Why don't we all just get in a room? And it's also, you know, who are making decisions for a bigger community? And if it's not the community itself, then you have to check yourself. So if you, so to me, I think a real key of that is, you know, integrating community centric fundraising where you are stewarding and cultivating donors of all levels the exact same. And you are stewarding a $5 donor the same way you're stewarding a $500,000 donor. Because Jackson, that's have, sc- that's scary as hell for a lot of shops. It I mean, is scary. You say but- that. You, in fact, Jackson, you're putting your your pie, <laughs> you're putting your hiring potential on the. I mean, how many? Yeah. I mean, I just read an article. I just read it. It's it's very interesting for you to say that. I mean, own up to that. I, I own up. I'm right where I'm right there with you. Yeah. I just I just read an article in the Chronicle today that you know we're all desperate to hire fundraisers, but. You know, are 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 we saying when you say that? Are we saying to the executive directors, "Look, you're going to hire Jackson, and he's not going to prioritize one relationship over another"? <laughs> I think what it is is where metrics come in. I think we, I think that's where the quantitative can come in because we yes. have so many tools that can steward a steward a five dollar donor to a five hundred dollar a five hundred thousand dollar donor. Yeah, so. That's I think, but I but yeah, it's fearless. It's bold. I'll own up to it because we're at this stage of rebuilding our donor bases uh, post COVID or as COVID is, you know, wherever in this leg. So we are rebuilding our bases, and we are also having to hold this idea of being inclusive and accessible to our community and and reflective of our community. And we can't do that 
if we are prioritizing people who give $500,000 over $5? Because we do not know if that $5 donor is just giving $5 to a bunch of different organizations and can one day give $500,000. We just don't know. So if we are making that decision for the donors, we are not doing our work of being inclusive. Now, we have ways of measuring, you know, and stewarding people along in the pipeline. But I mean, as a as a sort of test, really stewarding and cultivating like massive, big marketing and stewarding cultivation efforts with your entire donor base could show up some surprise major donors. And then from there, you want to just make sure that you are, you know, having those relationships close, but that you're continuing to cultivate people as a community, because then the major givers will give if they feel very inclined, and they feel like they trust you and your organization, they'll give more. Um, And yes, I mean, yeah, major gift officers, for sure, will take care of you know, (laughs) certain donors and such. But I think there need to be some really fearless and bold efforts on the organization's part to just, you know, build community trust through these big initiatives of, you know, thanking every single donor from 500,000 to $5 or inviting, you know, $100 and above to the gala. Like what, what would that look like? Who would show up? Probably some pretty surprised people or people who were like, I never thought I could get this involved in the organization. And so, you know, it's the organization's responsibility to open those doors. Otherwise they'll just be closing it out for certain people. And that just perpetuates this culture that we've been trying to, that we're now trying to dismantle of, you know, giving power and only, you know, really taking care of the people who write the big checks rather than cultivating a long-term relationship with the community where big checks can come later or soon, but there's just direct access to the organization. That's what we want as fundraisers, is to give the community education and tools so that they feel inclined to give and to continue to give. But we can't do that if we're only paying attention to the top 3%. We have to, you know, break down those barriers for everyone else and make them feel very close to the organization, no matter how much they give. And from there, you know, as we continue to steward with these like big efforts, then you can start to get a little more personal. Then you can start to notice who keeps coming or who keeps engaging and you do your research and you take them to lunch and you find out who they are. And, uh, I, you know, my, my big thing is like, we want to build a community that is so uh, feels very connected to your organization and will just continue to give throughout their entire life, whatever amount that is, you know, you can, that's, that's where our job comes in, right? We're tracking them. We check out their wealth screening. We see what they're capable of, but we just need to create this continuum of engagement that engages these donors throughout their entire life. You know, I think it might, uh, as I'm listening to you talk, I think it might have been a conversation about special events as I was listening to you. I'm thinking maybe that conversation about the gala was something that you and I talked. But it, it, it occurs to me as I'm listening to you that that's one of the things that I've been wrestling with as I've been listening to a lot of our a lot of our guests here on the podcast talk about sort of how we approach special events, for example, and how it, they tend to sort of very much sort of cater to the sort of the upper echelon and the, the, the top end of the hierarchy of donors that we um, is that that's part of that, what I call that intervening subculture, this, the, the mm-hmm. special event for all it's worth and all the amazing things that it does. It's still this, it's still not integrated. And I think the more we begin to see organizations in a very holistic sort of way, it's not, it's not that we have to completely overhaul our special events to make them, in my mind, more inclusive, it may right. be that you don't create separate events from the organization itself, that you don't, yeah. that the organ, that perhaps you, you know, if you're, if, if, shit, if you're a theater, for example, why do you have to create a separate event? If you're a community theater, you're in yeah. the art space, right? 
If you're in the art space, you guys have stuff going on all the time, year round, that you just need to design in such a way where everyone is integrated into it. Exactly. Am I right? No, you're absolutely right. That's something that I won't speak for my colleagues, but I, I that has been you know a big topic of conversation. Uh, just I know in the ballet field, but you're right in the arts where it's like you know why is the gala sometimes seen as so precious? And the reason why is because it has been for a long time, and so you know it, it's not saying down with galas or anything like that. We're not saying that at all. In fact, a gala is good for cultivating and stewarding a very certain group of people. And you do want to have, you're right, I love that idea of integrating all these events to be inclusive of everyone. But then, you know, as we are with fundraisers, you want to get specific sometimes and you want to target some specific groups, people who've been coming, you know, very, excuse me, very, um, you know, frequently and, you know, you want to maybe do a special event for them. I mean, the gala is what that is. You know, it's your, it's a cultivation stewardship of your major donors. And who knows, you might get a, um, you might get a surprise, you know, raise the paddle gift from that or a surprise person who has never attended the gala. But I think for, yeah, I, I I like that idea. And especially in the arts, we see that all the time. I mean, we have post-show talkbacks and we have yes, community right. events. We have outreach and things like that. And and I think the biggest thing that we feel as organizations is, you're right, making it accessible to people. So that's where, and going back to my my point, that's where sort of the fundraiser needs to check themselves to... <laughs> say you know who am i who am i deciding who 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 do i decide goes where and we think of it as strategy but we have to kind of take that off our mind for a minute and say like you know how can we make this more inclusive maybe incentivize people to attend and just keep them engaged because it's ultimately about engagement in the organization and people will give when they feel like they have enough tools and resources and education uh, to to be very invested in the organization, and if they're not, then that you know the fundraiser has to realize like, am I putting too much weight on one event a year versus opening up several events or having collaborative conversations between departments about how can we how can we make these more inclusive? Who can we invite for this? Are we just are we, you know, throughout my career, you know, I recall all these conversations about job titles and job descriptions and those sorts of things. I mean, are we at the place where we just need to sort of confront the idea that the idea of being fundraisers is just too heavily hinged on the transaction? And to get to your earliest point, you know, as, as you kicked off this conversation with the two points, we've so much centered money. I'm 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 also reflecting on Lucy Bernholtz's book where she talks about the idea yeah. that and and I'm also thinking about my own experiences having grown up in the church where we talk about time talent and treasure. You know, yeah. I was I was never taught and for none of my employ, employer employers have I ever been able to not acknowledge, you know, the diversity of what people do bring to in terms of their yeah. gifts, you know, what what yeah. they bring to the table to contribute. Um, and, and Lucy in her book, Bernholtz in her, her book talks about, you know, not only are we bringing time and expertise and money, but now we're bringing data. I mean, a lot of us are contributing yeah. information that, that now this information, it never even occurred to me what she's talking about. I'm still trying to get my head a little bit wrapped around it, <laughs> but I'm guessing, and I, and I want to let you talk a little bit about this forthcoming yeah. book that you're working on. Yeah. I mean, is that this idea of centering more than just money? Whether we're talking about the five dollar donor or the five million dollar donor, perhaps we've got to get better at talking about the 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 non monetary donor. I guess is what we might call them. Yeah, well, and and I think where that comes in, you know, the the point in my in my book that I talk about is is you know the money should sometimes be the last thing you should get. Some, I mean, again, terrible. 
ter- terrible job interview here, but uh, <laughs> you know, but I mean, you know, but it, but let me let me backtrack that. It start, you know, it starts. I'm with, not. I'm not interviewing. You, I know. Robert. I know. Uh, but it. But it. It starts with it. You know, it starts with engaging. Like it really starts with engaging and building community. Yeah. Again, through events, through accessibility, through making donating the easiest thing possible. Um, you know, telling the story of the organization. And then as you're seeing people who are people who are becoming more engaged or, um, you know, showing a a true love of your organization, either through donating or attending shows, attending events, reaching out communications, then, you know, you want to steward them and cultivate them in a way. I mean, this is this is the basic fundraising, you know, one on one kind of thing. However, the thing as a fundraiser to 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 recognize is no matter what giving level they're at, really meeting them one on one and talking with them as a person to hear what about the organization moves them and you know why do they give is almost more important than the amount that they're giving. That's that's what I meant by the money is the last thing. It's like the story behind what the organization means to them and why they why they give too just in general as people why do they give is so important um i love lucy's book because it is in, incredible about you know what we're giving and how we give um and then you know sort of my book is more about the the human element of it where it's like you know what happens when we take transaction out of it period you know, what does it look like when we put out an ask letter and we take out the ask and we look at it and we say, are we telling, you know, are we telling our story in a way that is human and that reaches people? You know, what story are we telling to who is telling the story? Is it the executive director? Is it the artistic director? So it's like centering the really human values of fundraising that we, you know, and I'm guilty of this too. Uh, even even now, even writing this book, I mean, it's just like how how are we adding the transaction onto the human element <laughs> rather than the human element onto transaction, and then you know, really stepping back and looking at the donor's journey with the organization, what's the donor's story with the organization? Um, so it's really centering people in that way and. Again, everything you're putting out into an organization from an organization is seen with a very human eye, which means it's like, you know, who are we including? Who are we not including? And but that needs to start right in the office. You know, that needs to start with you. Um, And I, I think from that, then we are able to create this, you know, great human society where we're all just in this big cycle of helping one another, giving our time, and where donors themselves can go to a nonprofit and say, I give five I can only give five dollars. In fact, I don't even want to give, but I want to help you and I want to advocate for you. And so it's building community to be on your side, even if they're not giving money. So that's where I see a lot of power in community-centric fundraising, where it's like you have a whole group of people that you can continue to cultivate to be on your side uh, and help you whenever you need. And COVID really, I mean, okay, here's another bold claim. COVID, COVID really showed us who did that work and who was not doing that work. Because the organizations that were saying, none of our donors are giving, blah, 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 blah. I would just turn around and say, yeah, that's, that's your fault. Like that is the organization's fault. That's the fundraiser's fault. That's the organization's fault that they were not stewarding a community of donors that would, you know, give when they were in in crisis. And there were several um, organizations I had talked to and executive directors in particular, not just in the arts, but in nonprofits. And I said, well, what did each of your emails, did your emails like go out and all this stuff? And she said, well, uh, there was one where she said, well, I only talk to my donors twice a year and it's to ask money. I was like, well, then, you know, it's going to be a little harder for you to 
stay relevant or, you know, when something like a global pandemic happens. And so it's, it's cultivating, you know, telling the story of the organization, allowing the donors to feel close to you, um, not just for when, you know, the bottom falls out and the apocalypse happens, but it's in the case of when you are in need, people will do what you say, you know, the community will, uh, will have trust in you that if they give in, in whatever way they want to give, that it will be stewarded correctly. Yeah, I think, you know, you, you remind me I'm reading, um, are you familiar with um, Dean Spade's book about mutual aid? Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, I love that. I yeah, love that yeah. yeah, and, and yeah. I think you know what he talks about is the idea that during the during the um, I mean that that Spade is writing about the whole mutual aid movement and the idea that that's really what sort of what's one of those ways in which people were able to express solidarity with their neighbors and with their communities and with whomever you know wherever they sort of saw the crisis sort of playing out. And I think that's where our, our fundraising efforts and maybe our organizations just in general are sort of are missing it is mm-hmm. that like what Spade talks about. I think we're seeing people, they're finding other ways to sort of deliver on this solidarity. Yeah. Um, uh, or like one, uh, one of my previous guests recently talked about, you know, citizenship there, you know, we're figuring out how to be in solidarity with one another. We're breaking, we're sort of dismantling some of this hierarchy. Um, and fundraising and nonprofits are going to have to catch up. Am I right? No, you're absolutely right. And I, I, I think it's almost like the time is now, so we have to do it. And I, I, I mean, not to sound like a broken record, but you know, a good place to start is, as I mentioned before, like just how, how do you deal with money? How, how are you as a fundraiser dealing with money? And in my book, I talk about that where. I say, you know, think about think about your biggest donors in your organization and take their money away. What are they offering to your organization? And you have to be really clear about, you know, some some donors. And I, I just want to say this first is that yes, some do, some donor relationships are purely transactional. Yeah, yeah. Some sure. are purely transactional. Sure. Either from the donor's perspective or your perspective, where you're like. I've tried to reach out to this person. They've never reached out to me. They give me a check for 50 grand. That's great. Cool. A lot of value in that. But I think as you're building a board and a community and something that is inclusive of the community, you want to take away this, this sort of high, high requirement of, you know, we will only listen to you if you give above this amount. And you actually might be really, really surprised, especially when it comes to moments in your community when you have to advocate for public funding or a lawsuit comes through and all this stuff, like, you know, things that where skills and advocacy of a group can really come to your aid. And I think, yeah, fundraisers need to, you know, really get into your base and figure out who is in your donor base now? Yeah. Um, that's something I've said to executive directors. I'm like, it's not who was in your base before COVID. Who stayed with you during right. this time? And who is in there? And what are they able to do on behalf of your organization? It doesn't mean that they get to be board members. It doesn't mean that they get to be major donors. But they have something to offer because they obviously felt a real connection with you to stay through and see through to you. And even if it means like hearing their story and maybe they don't have anything to give other than their story and their amount, that's still fine. It's your responsibility to know who's in your base and to, you know, steward that along. Um, That's, that's really where it is. I mean, adding that really human element Sounds like a very radical uh, or is a very basic idea, but it is very radical at this time of recovery. And as we're building back better, um, you know, our base and our funds, we just need to always remember to get into our base and figure out, you know, who are these people who are giving and how can we continue to, to steward them and thank them? And how can they be advocates for us out into the community? 
Jackson, we lose our listeners at about 45 minutes in. I want to make sure <laughs> I want to make sure that uh, anybody who's holding on with us now can uh, perhaps there's something that uh, that you and I talked about that you yeah. had to say that was intriguing. Um, I do want to allow you an opportunity to let people know how to reach out to you. And, mm-hmm. uh, and what's the timing on that book? Yeah, so uh, people can reach out to me on LinkedIn, Jackson Cooper, um, J Cooper Arts, um, also on Instagram, jackson.cooper.arts. And um, yes, and then my book will hopefully be coming out at the end of 2023. I'm finishing it up right now. Uh, and that will be out from Routledge and uh, a few other publications coming out in the next few years. So but I'm very excited about this uh, giving book. It'll sit very nicely next to Lucy's. So I'm very excited. Yeah. Fantastic. And I'll, I'll, I'll sign your copy once it's released, Jason. So And when it is, uh, we'll make sure to have you back and we'll, uh, we'll shine a spotlight on it some more. Great. Jackson. Thank you. Jackson, it has certainly been a pleasure. You're always welcome back. Thank you so much, Jason. Appreciate it. Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read? In this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all too familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent, challenges are ingrained beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.